Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number 17, and today I'm honored to be speaking with world-renowned researcher, nutrition and protein expert, Dr. Stu Phillips, to discuss the International Olympic Committee's recent paper and consensus statement on the use of dietary supplements for athletes. In this episode, Stu will discuss the athletes' rationales and motives for using supplements, everyone's favorite supplement, caffeine, and how its usage and strategies may differ between endurance, exercise versus repeated sprints. We'll talk the use of dietary nitrates, what duration of exercise benefits most, along with timing and dose strategies. Sodium bicarbonate, often overlooked but consistently showing ergogenic benefit for athletes, if you can sidestep some of the digestive concerns. Stu will also discuss immune support supplements, what the evidence-based research supports, and which ones are more hype than substance. He'll also discuss supplements that indirectly support performance via improving capacity to train or recover, such as HMB, omega-3s, and collagen supplements. Finally, he'll touch base on the decision-making tree used in the consensus statement to help coaches, athletes, and practitioners really figure out how to best apply supplement strategies. Awesome insights here from Stu, who also shares a glimpse into his daily routine, the gym as a sanctuary, daily steps for longevity, and of course, how he's a hardcore coffee guy as well. So really, really great stuff here from Stu. Of course, you can find all the links to the research papers, articles discussed here at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as my layups, these simple actionable tips. If you're interested in more on the role of supplements and performance, then you can circle back to season one, episode number 34 with Dr. Jose Antonio. And of course, season two, episode number eight with Dr. Brianna Stubbs, we discussed the use of exogenous ketone supplements for endurance training. All right, let's get things rolling. Season two, episode number 17 with Dr. Stu Phillips. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Professor Stu Phillips a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Skittle Muscle Health, Professor in Kinesiology, and Adjunct Professor in the School of Medicine at McMaster University in Canada. He is a Fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine and the American College of Nutrition, and his research is focused on the impact of nutrition and exercise on human skeletal muscle protein turnover. Professor Phillips currently has more than 18,000 career citations and 200 original scientific research and review papers. Prof, thanks so much for taking the time today. Oh, my pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, listen, before we uh, start talking supplements and athletic performance, can you perhaps kick things off by sharing a little bit more about uh, your background and how you got interested in sport and research? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I played all kinds of sports growing up. Um, I'd probably say that uh, between hockey and uh, rugby, that rugby was my number one sport growing up. Um, I played it throughout my university career. I did an undergrad in, uh, in biochemistry, and the only reason I did an undergrad in biochem as opposed to kinesiology, because at the time, uh, kinesiology didn't exist at McMaster. That's where I did my undergrad. Um, it was physical education, and I just wanted a little bit more science than that. So um, I followed the biochem route. Uh, in my fourth year, uh, I took a course in nutrition, which opened my eyes up to uh, a whole new discipline. And uh, things have just kind of grown from there. So it's a real pleasure to be able to blend 
my interest in nutrition and particularly in protein uh, was something related to uh, to athletic performance. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> the rest is history, as they say, right? Yeah, the rest yeah. is history. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you recently were a co-author along with a group of world experts like yourself on the uh, IOC consensus statement, Dietary Supplements and the High Performance Athlete. Uh, before we dive into the evidence-based supplements uh, for athletes, could you perhaps do a quick review of the hierarchy of scientific evidence for all the trainers, practitioners, et cetera, listening in and you know how that's used to establish good practice? Yeah, you know, I, I will say right off the bat that that was one of the most uh, difficult papers that I have ever uh, been part of writing. Uh, the, the list of authors are numerous, and the people involved in the process, you can imagine, uh, when the IOC steps into this world, uh, were extensive. So it uh, required the coordination of a lot of people, and uh, there was agreement and disagreement, and um, yeah, a lot of uh, you know controversy and conversation along the way because uh, WADA was involved as well as you might imagine. So it, it was it was really difficult. But um, when it comes to evidence, uh, you know the the basis of a lot of this is really uh, starts with anecdotal observation. Athlete X takes supplement Y and and achieves outcome Z, if you like. And uh, then I think after a while, science begins to catch up and you get uh, a couple of studies. Um, the better studies would be a randomized controlled trial in which things were, were blinded. And then eventually you begin to accumulate enough of these randomized trials that you can begin to perform uh, so-called meta-analyses, which are considered to be uh, sort of the highest level of evidence as far as um, evidence-based, if you like, practice or medicine is concerned, because now you've got disparate populations, you've got different places around the world, you've got athletes, and uh, when consistent patterns begin to emerge, either things do or do not work, then you're, you're, you're far more confident in the outcome. So, Essentially, um, when you boil a lot of what we said in that paper down, it really does come down to things having a pretty good evidence base and really having some kind of meta-analysis. So I, I will admit, not in all cases, uh, and in some cases, we just had to say, you know what, there's not enough evidence right now, but maybe in a few years we could we could endorse that. But um, I'll tell you, man, it, it, it wasn't easy. It was, it was really controversial um, right from the beginning all the way down to the final drafts. I think we went through 37 drafts of that manuscript. So, wow. Yeah. And, of course, in the paper, you guys kick things off by looking at the, you know, the prevalence of supplement use. So how did things like an athlete's training level, age, gender, or even the cultural norms impact things on that front? Well, I mean, I think that that this is the important point is that the IOC, until this paper came out, really had adopted the stance that supplements were not necessary. In other words, you know, you can do all this via diet alone. And, and I think athletes and coaches around the world had sort of been screaming for a long time that that's just not the case, that there are some supplements that do have an evidence base and the IOC needs to move from beyond that. But clearly in the back of their mind was always the issue of contamination and, and strict liability as far as the athlete's concerned. But, I mean, supplement use is extraordinarily prevalent. I mean, not just in athletes, but in 
uh, the general population. So, uh, you know, it, it represents, I think, a real step into what's going on in the 21st century. But um, all the way up from, uh, you know, sort of grassroots, even uh, youth level sports, and then increasingly uh, prevalent, particularly in body composition, physique competition, uh, all the way up to elite sports, you're, you're seeing supplement use. I, I, I would find it actually pretty difficult to believe that there's an athlete out there that's not using some form of supplementation that we had described in that um, in that manuscript. Yeah, it's terrific because you guys also do a great job of talking about sort of the rationales and the motives for using uh, supplements for sport. Can you can you walk people through a few of the ones that you uh, listed in the paper? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, clearly the first one is to say it's going to somehow enhance your performance, whatever your performance indicator would be, and that that could be physique, it could be to be bigger, it could have be to have less body fat, it could be to be faster, et cetera, and all the things that we sort of associate with performance, but it might be uh, monetary. There are a lot of athletes who are making uh, money from endorsements, and you, know, uh, you, you can't ignore that in some situations. It could also be that uh, this is a team philosophy, that this is what coaches do, that this is what um, certain practices that happen in certain clubs. It could be peer pressure from other athletes. Um, you know, I have a, a long-standing uh, axiom that I tell people that um, the success of a particular athlete and the anecdote that they can give for a supplement is uh, are directly proportional. So if you're a gold medal winner and you were taking this when you won and you tell another athlete, I'd be willing to bet that other athlete would take the supplement um, just to see what, what happens. So the, sure. the, the sources are multiple and you, you can't really discount one over the other. And let's uh, if we shift gears here and actually talk about the supplements you identified as directly improving performance. You know, there are a lot of claims out there, as you mentioned, anecdotal evidence. But you know, what were some of the ones that you guys identified as having the strongest evidence? Yeah, it really, and I think the list is is short compared to the number of supplements out there, which in and of itself is a statement of really, you know, to try to cut through some of the marketing. Uh, hype that surrounds a lot of supplements. I always say that the ratio of supplements that have been successful um, to the ratio of supplements that have not uh, is extremely small. So we we essentially boiled the evidence down. We came up with uh, with caffeine um, more so in its isolated form rather than in in the cup of coffee, but. Uh, there are some people who could do very well with a cup of coffee. Thank you very much. Uh, creatine, <laughs> sure. which is, you know, it stood the test of time as a body composition supplement and enhancing sprint performance. Uh, bicarbonate, which probably I think a lot of people roll their eyes and say, oh boy, you know, how does how does baking soda even make the list? But uh, again, it's it stood the test of time, uh, not without some of its drawbacks. Um, a little bit of a newcomer uh, on the list and, and sort of on the fringe would be beta alanine and, uh, and also sort of on the outside would be some nitrates. So, you know, beetroot being the, um, I guess, most obvious example. But, you know, the, the traditional uh, protein powder is up there, uh, carbohydrate provision. Uh, those are sort of standard, I, I guess. But as far as uh, supplements go, the, the, the list is actually pretty short. 
For sure. And if, you know, obviously caffeine being so uh, deeply embedded in, in sport and everyone's mind in terms of performance. So, you know, can you maybe talk about some of the different mechanisms on how it's actually exerting some of those effects? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that caffeine's undergone. I mean, it's it, it's it's been around for the uh, a long period of time. There's a lot of uh, mechanisms on uh, how it might work. I think for a long time, people were convinced that it increased uh, lipolysis, so breakdown of fat tissue, and that that somehow spared muscle glycogen. I, I think most people now. Uh, if they agree with that mechanism, they would agree that it's not the most prevalent mechanism, that there actually may be something direct uh, to do with caffeine acting on the muscle per se. But most of caffeine's effects really come uh, from the central nervous system stimulation and the uh, arousal that uh, accompanies that, that you know, a lot of us enjoy in the morning when we wake up and uh, know kind of get the day going but for an athlete it it, it really uh, does seem to suggest that um, that's where the most of the performance adaptations occur now I will say this and it's really interesting actually that uh, Nancy Guest who uh, is a dietitian of some uh, fame in this area just published a paper in uh, medicine science sports and exercise showing that actually you're your genotype, so what types of genes you have for your ability to be able to metabolize caffeine, some, somehow uh, determine the fact of whether you're going to benefit or not. So it's, it's worth looking into. For some people, they get a bit of a buzz from coffee, but they don't get a huge performance boost. Uh, for some people, they get a moderate boost. And then uh, other people, it's like, you know, it's like rocket fuel. But it seems to be the, one of the most consistent performance boosters that we came across. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I uh, had Nancy on the podcast last year, and she'll be coming back to talk about some of her new research. And it's uh, it's really interesting, that genetic side of things. And um, Yeah, there you go. I mean, it, you know, the, there's the other layer that, um, you know, I, I think we're beginning to sort of peel back. And, you know, Nancy and uh, Ahmed's research uh, are uh, right at the hotbed of sort of looking at some of these genetic polymorphisms and their role. So, uh, yeah, again, uh, I... <laughs> You know, as much as we know, then uh, we're beginning to learn more and more about something different as well. And how do some of the uh, dosing strategies potentially differ then if you're more endurance-based bout of exercise versus something like repeated sprints when talking about caffeine? Yeah, you know, I think when you look at caffeine historically, you're really looking um, at doses when people sort of, I think, thought in the lab, you know, we really need to see an effect. And so there are doses as high as nine milligrams, uh, you know, uh, per kilogram uh, body weight, for example. And I think a lot of work now suggests that you can get down to probably as low as between one to three milligrams per, uh, per kilogram. And again, this is the, the pure caffeine form, uh, so not, not a cup of coffee. And um, I don't know that it differs an awful lot between uh, you know, with with each respective sport, but it appears that, you know, it's a pretty low threshold. And I think that there was a concept for a while that if you were a habitual caffeine consumer, that you needed to withdraw yourself from caffeine. And, and again, most of the recent research has suggested that's, that's not the case. Uh, so you don't have to skip that cup of coffee uh, for it to have its benefit or, or, or take your caffeine capsule or, or whatever it is. So, um, it's a pretty consistent uh, effect, and I, I think settling around three milligrams per 
per kilo body weight is really the the dose that's sort of a sweet spot. Yeah, definitely. As folks get up towards five or six, even you start to see, you know, potentially some of the effects of of, of getting too much caffeine in the system. And of course, you guys write about the pairing caffeine with carbohydrates during exercise. You know, why is that so important? Yeah, you know that that work comes uh, a lot of that comes from Louise Burke and her work down at the Australian Institute And uh, I think the carbohydrate provision stories uh, been out there for a long time. And really, what you're what you're doing is providing yourself with an alternative fuel source from uh, if you like liver standpoint. So you're you're acting as a surrogate liver. Um, and the provision of caffeine you know, it used to be thought of as just a pre-exercise strategy, but sure, certainly during exercise is a time when uh, Louise and her crew uh, were looking at cyclists and actually found that it, they got a little performance boost um, even during the event as well. So the, the old story was that the cyclists were drinking you know, defizzed uh, Coke, yeah, um, and saying, "Hey, we're getting, you know, we're getting a lift from this." And then you, you know, Louise and her crew said, "Well, it's it's the sugar that's in the Coke, um, but there's, you know, not an insubstantial amount of caffeine that goes along with that." So uh, lo and behold, uh, again, the anecdotal field test cyclists were were uh, feeding back turned out to be uh, when you when they tested it in the lab that exactly the way things were working. So. There's, uh, you know, practice informs science and science goes back and informs practice. Absolutely. And talking about that science informing practice, you mentioned before dietary nitrates. You know, can you talk about some of the mechanisms that play there to support performance? Yeah, no, these are, this is the kind of new kid on the block. I yep. mean, I, I always joke with people that uh, if you'd have told me maybe not five years ago, uh, but maybe six or seven years ago, you go, you know, beetroots are going to be the next big thing in performance enhancement. I'd have laughed right in your face and I said, not a chance. Um, but beetroots in this sense are, are really, they're the vehicle for uh, the conveyance of, uh, of nitrates. And the nitrates, to remind everybody, really come from the soil. So uh, an interesting um, uh, anecdote here is that Andy Jones, who's the guy sort of behind the, the, the big beetroot craze. Andy like, Beetroot. Yeah, any mm -hmm. beetroot. Yeah, I, I, he will tell you that if there are beets that are grown in, in nitrate poor soil, they're not quite as effective as as uh, beets grown in nitrate rich soil. And of course, there are lots of other sources. Um, we call it arugula on the other side of the Atlantic. They call it rocket. Um, but if you eat a lot of arugula, you're getting a, a actually per per gram of arugula, you're getting a lot more nitrate. How it actually works, there's sort of two theories. One is that it's uh, enhancing uh, nitric oxide production. And nitric oxide, I, I think, uh, if you don't or, or, or if you do know, but it's, it's a vasodilator. So I'm increasing blood flow delivery to the muscle. But there's a, a group of uh, Swedish researchers that have shown that nitrate actually acts at the level of the mitochondria to improve mitochondrial ATP uh, production and efficiency. And I'm not sure where the science lies on which of these is the best or, you know, the, the theory that's sort of bearing fruit, um, but it could be a combination. And in all likelihood, that's probably where most things tend to lie uh, of those two mechanisms. Um, Trent Stellingworth would be the first to, to uh, remind me that, to tell you that uh, the more elite people get, the less effective though those things 
tend to become. So uh, I'm not saying it's uh, not a, a good strategy, but I'm, I'm sure, again, that you tend to get these responders and non-responders um, at the highest level. Some people swear by it. Other people are like, yeah, I did nothing for me. Absolutely. And is, you know, is there a duration of exercise boat that uh, is best supported there in terms of timing or dose with the, the dietary nitrates? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, again, it's sort of, it, it's, um, I would say, sprint-ish um, up to middle distance. Um, long distance events, uh, I think, are more uh, equivocal. But um, again, these sort of 400, 800, 1500 meter type events are the those are the events where uh, most of the performance advantages have been seen. And, and, and similarly, whether it's uh, running or rowing or, or anything like that. So um, not too long. Uh, I would call them, yeah, I mean, sort of, the, they're, they're grueling. I mean, it's a sprint, but it's just a very long sprint. Yeah, absolutely. Tough, tough work to get those types of sprints in. Um, yeah. That sort of dovetails into the you know sodium bicarb, which you mentioned, of course, on the list. And um, can you again kind of refresh people on how that mechanism works? Yeah, I mean, this is this is sort of age old stuff, and it's really about uh, you know a quick lesson in pH balance. So um, you know, uh, acidity, whether it be uh, <clears throat> excuse me uh, in the blood or or intramuscular, uh, clearly not not a particularly good thing. Most athletes find that you know that's when things start to go south in terms of fatigue and performance, and uh, Bicarbonate makes uh, a small adjustment in blood pH, makes you a little bit more basic and allows you to, uh, to buffer your blood pH a little bit better. And um, the real downside of bicarbonate are obviously the gastrointestinal uh, problems that, that occur in some people. Um, it has to be taken in pretty close proximity to the event. It's not a lasting effect. And so, you know, you need to time that uh, with respect to the event somewhere between sort of half an hour uh, or so before the event. And that's not the best time to, you know, if you don't react particularly well to uh, kind of get rid of those, those GI symptoms. So, um, you know, the advice is always practice it in, in practice uh, in a simulated race before you try it in, in the real deal where it really is going to count. So, again... Uh, sprint-type activities, uh, repeated sprints, that sort of thing. Um, some people are able to handle it. Other people, not so much. Yeah, it's definitely one in, uh, in practice. Uh, I can see you know, a higher percentage with the GI distress, and just as you mentioned uh, in, the, in the paper there. But you guys also provide some practical strategies as well for helping to potentially mitigate some of that GI distress. Can you share some of those with folks? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, again, it's sort of dose and timing and the form of the bicarbonate and everything else that you can look at. And you can manipulate those um, and practice, you know, I, I, again, and, and is sort of the best thing to uh, to try out with respect to, um, you know, who can tolerate it and how much and does it actually have an effect. So splitting up the doses into smaller doses as opposed to a, a large bolus and, uh, and really, you know, the proximity to the event, I think, are, are some of the more common ones who are ingesting it with uh, some type of food or something like that could be a, a, another strategy. But um, it, I think the, the biggest thing that, you know, when you talk to athletes about this, they figure it out pretty quickly. Some people are able to handle this in all kinds of doses, and it never really has an impact, whereas other athletes just 
you know, time and time again, they try it and they're like, oh, maybe that was a, just a bad experience. They try it again and it just never really works for them. So it makes you wonder again whether there is some sort of uh, underlying genetic predisposition to uh, your ability to be able to tolerate that. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it's amazing. As you said, uh, athletes will inherently, obviously, when things around GI distress, especially, they sort of give it that trial and error and find out pretty quick if there's a, a dose or timing that works for them. And if it doesn't, sort of moving on to something that's a bit more practical and applicable for them. Now, you guys also discuss supplements that indirectly support athletic performance, such as, you know, via immune health. So what were some of the supplements that stood out there above the rest in terms of immunity? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is an area where uh, the science gets a little bit gray, uh, and it wasn't an area that I was directly involved with. So I'm paraphrasing, you know, people like Professor Neil Walsh and Matt Larson-Meyer who were involved in this section. But certainly uh, probiotic supplements are very, very popular. And uh, the thought is there, of course, that diversity of your um, gut flora, the type of microbes that you have in your gut, is going to confer some type of immune benefit. I think it would be fair to say that the results to this point have been uh, a little bit equivocal. Uh, there are some truisms, and that is, first, uh, it takes... Uh, a tremendous amount of probiotic supplement to shift your gut flora and you have to keep taking the supplement. So it's not like once you've taken it, that these flor these, uh, these bugs grow in your gut and they stay there forever. And that's not the case. Um, but it does appear that, um, microbiotic diversity. So in other words, the more diverse the species that you have in your gut are, that you do have some uh, immune benefit that's associated with that. So I think that's sort of one of the, uh, I don't, I, I hate to use the word trendy, but very popular right now. Um, a lot of people uh, definitely swear by this. They say it's, it's really key and critical. Um, gut permeability is a big issue. Obviously we talked about gastrointestinal health. So um, that's a, that's a big deal for athletes. Especially um, endurance athletes as well. Those longer duration bouts definitely oh, yeah, tough on yeah, the gut. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I think the longer the event, um, probably the greater the incidence of all kinds of GI distress. So and that's maybe a gut blood flow issue or something like that. But those were, I, I mean, that along with uh, we talked about vitamin D extensively uh, in the position stand. Uh, and a number of other sort of, uh, I would guess, I would call them sort of more peripheral players. So some some beta glucan uh, containing supplements, uh, a few other sort of uh, potential immune enhancers, but nothing that I would call as probably as prevalent. And maybe, although it lacks some of what we would call grade A evidence, definitely uh, this probiotic supplementation, I think, is is here to stay. Yeah, it's amazing how some of the common supplements, especially for immunity, things like even supplemental glutamine, which um, in speaking with Dr. Eric Helms earlier this year, you know, a lot of the research around uh, use in, in hospital settings and burn victims, et cetera, showing benefit but when in general population or athletes, um, you know, not, not so much on the immune side. And I noticed you guys as well found the, the evidence sort of lacking there of glutamine and the immune support. Yeah, I mean, the, the difficult part with glutamine um, is, again, great theory. Uh, and if you take people like burn patients and people who are, are 
septic and, you know, really, really sick people, um, you, when you give them glutamine, you bring it up from a deficient to a sufficient level. The hard part about glutamine is it's one of the most prevalent uh, amino acids that are in your muscles. So taking it from sufficient to, you know, supra normal levels, just really, really difficult to do. Um, we had, we, we've tried a number of times in my lab to raise the levels of uh, glutamine in people's muscles and you just can't do it. So I think it's really a situation where the injury um, scenarios paint a picture that just doesn't transfer to normal people, sufficient levels to supra normal. So yeah, glutamine didn't get a uh, didn't get a particularly good score. And of course, some of the other supplements that uh, you talk about in the indirectly improving performance, you know, via their ability to you know, assist an athlete to train harder, to perhaps recover more quickly, prevent injury, uh, accelerate return to play. Uh, obviously, the top of the list was, uh, you know, creatine was there. I had Dr. Jose Antonio on last year talking creatine. Um, and next up was HMB. So perhaps for listeners who aren't as familiar, can you, can you describe what HMB is and how it can potentially impact performance? Yeah, I mean, you know, creatine's been around, as you mentioned, it's it stood the test of time. Um, you know, I was in grad school when Eric Holtman and, you know, he first started doing those creatine studies. And it's, and it's just fact. I mean, there's the testimony to, uh, you know, a supplement that people have tested uh, in science, athletes have tried, and it still keeps coming back. So that's probably, you know, uh, I think one of the things that you can look for. Uh, HMB uh, is, is a leucine metabolite. Um, so leucine, for people who don't know, is a key and critical uh, core amino acid that turns on and stimulates muscle protein synthesis. Uh, HMB uh, is a metabolite that's downstream from leucine, so it undergoes a number of chemical uh, conversion steps. And it could uh, stimulate muscle protein synthesis and suppress muscle protein breakdown. Um, my sense is that the extent to which it can do that is probably of a similar nature uh, to leucine. I, I don't think it's going to be superior in any of those uh, situations. But one of the scenarios where HMB does appear to be pretty um, effective is if people are returning from uh, some type of injury, uh, it certainly appears to restore lost uh, lean mass, lost muscle mass um, pretty rapidly. So th there's a situation where I think HMB uh, might be uh, of good use. Um, but again, um, my opinion, at least based on some work that we've got, uh, is that it's probably not going to be much better than uh, leucine, to be honest with you. And in terms of you know dosing or timing with the HMB, is there a certain strategy there? Um, most of the dosing is available for the calcium form of the uh, compound, so it's calcium HMB, and that's that's three grams per day. Uh, I think dosed um, usually at, at two one and a half gram doses. There is a newer form of the uh, of the uh, compound out there called the free acid form, and uh, it appears to be similar doses, sort of a gram, a gram and a half uh, per dose, maybe once or twice a day. Um, but really, I, like I look at, at HMB as being a, a recovery supplement more than, than uh, anything else. But I, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of some of the data that's out there with respect to 
uh, enhancements in muscle size. We've got um, some studies underway right now which suggest that it's probably not as effective as some people have found it. Yeah, you mentioned in terms of total protein intake. If that's uh, if someone has their total protein intake on point, um, then the, the benefits there could be pretty equivocal, no? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's probably the case with a lot of amino acid-based supplements. And people talk about arginine and glutamine and all kinds of things, uh, glycine and everything. And I think when you've got your, like as you said, you, you've got your protein requirements dialed in, it's hard to imagine that any of those amino acids are going to uh, enhance your um, ability to recover or adapt to any greater degree. And, that, you know, clearly there's a limit. Uh, with all of these things, but um, most people's uh, protein intakes, if they're sort of up around where we're recommending, so say twice the RDA or about 1.6 grams per kilo per day, uh, maybe up to as high as 2.2 uh, grams per kilo per day, which is the you know the the, the old bodybuilding axiom of of, of one gram per pound. Yeah. Um, then. It, it's hard for me to imagine that individual amino acid supplements or branch chains or something like that could do anything more if you've got all of those things dialed in. So um, I, I, I stand to be corrected unless there's better science out there. But honestly, that's kind of our wheelhouse, and uh, I, I don't, I can't think of any. And of course, you guys also discuss uh, the role of omega-3 fats, so perhaps a different mechanism here, but possibly increasing uh, muscle protein synthesis and, of course, reducing symptoms of uh, delayed onset muscle soreness. You know, are these findings consistent? And uh, you know, is it, can someone achieve this potentially just from eating uh, you know, fish you know, from food sources rather than even supplements? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. You know, om omegas have been around for a long time, obviously, and you know, touted a, uh, all kinds of potential health benefits. Um, from the standpoint that you're discussing, again, the literature does appear to be pretty consistent. They are able to change something to do with, with stimulating muscle protein synthesis. So, yeah, they might enhance uh, an effect there. It really does seem that you need some, some pretty high doses. Uh, I'm not you know, going to uh, dismiss any dietary advice to eat fish. I think it's a great piece of advice. And I, I like fish, so I think it's a, not a problem to add an extra dose. Anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, most people's hack on fish is generally goes, oh, it's kind of fishy. And I'm like, oh, it is fish, you know. Um, <laughs> but, but the fish oil appears to be that you do tend to need it uh, to take it in, in, in fairly high doses. That will be difficult to get uh, from eating fish alone. Um, so it does appear that you need some kind of supplement, one that's um, particularly rich in, in uh, EPA or acosapentaenoic acid and DHA, uh, the docosahexaenoic acid. Um, again, the anti-inflammatory side of things and the muscle soreness, um, I think a little bit grayer um, than most people would like. I don't see the I don't see a, a big downside to to taking it. The fairly low risk uh, supplement. The one, if there is a downside, of course, is if you have uh, some kind of trauma. In other words, if you get a bruise, um, then high doses of fish oil prolong bleeding time. And so sometimes the bruising that you can see uh, if you're on this stuff can be can be fairly extensive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously a blood thinner as well. So things like around surgeries, um, 
And shifting gears a little bit on the omega-3, though, you guys also have, you know, there's a really interesting line of research around the use of, as you mentioned, high-dose omega-3s there for recovery from head trauma concussion, which you guys touch on. Can you share some of the, you know, where things are at perhaps in the research with that? Yeah, so so that's a that's a really, uh, I, I would love to be able to say, you know what, there's some really great research on that and the, and the evidence looks really good and uh, the answer is, uh, can't say that right now, but what I would say is that, you know, we know this, is that um, the phospholipids that are in uh, neuronal cells in our brain, for example, are extraordinarily rich in these long-chain uh, fatty acids. So the, the docosahexanoic acid, uh, in particular, may confer some protective effect against concussion. Uh, I'm waiting to see, and I'm sure they're going to come. If they're not happening already, I'm sure they're either being planned or they're probably underway, to be honest. Uh, some really good controlled randomized trials. Now, uh, the problem is it has to be a pragmatic trial because it's not like you can uh, go around and induce a consistent concussion in one group and the same in another group and, you know, sort of see what happens. Yeah, it's tough to get that past the ethics board, right? Yeah, yeah it's not, not going not gonna to fly. Uh, but it has to be pragmatic. So, um, you know, clearly uh, sort of a convenient sample and look at concussion incidents and then uh, return to play and be able to pull out with enough numbers uh, of participants that, that, that there is some beneficial impact. But again, when we talk about uh, strategies that are potentially low risk and might yield a benefit, um, that's something where you might sort of want to check one off the list, particularly if, uh, you know, someone has a history of concussions. So, but, but I'll be honest in saying that the evidence is, geez, I, you know, I, I don't know, uh, just yet. So developing, keep an eye on that. Early obviously, days. <laughs> absolutely crucial area for, for a lot of athletes. Yeah, I mean, obviously, ice hockey, rugby, American football, so many sports where this is now becoming, uh, even, you know, soccer for that matter, such a hot topic at the moment. Uh, of course, in the yeah. paper, you guys have more sections, you know, we haven't touched on today, such as supplements for physique change and correcting micronutrient deficiencies, insufficiencies. So definitely encourage everyone to have a read through the paper. Um, but just want to jump over to the decision-making tree that you guys chose to include there at the end, which is terrific. Could you, you know, explain that to folks and, and why you chose to add that to the paper? Yeah, so so there's two of them. Uh, one is a, I mean, these decision trees or flow charts, if you want to call them, um, for nutritional supplement use. So let's say you know you're told that you're uh, iron deficient. So do I need an, an iron supplement? Uh, and the other one is um, about making a decision regarding supplement usage. So you know, is creatine the right supplement for me, for example? Um, and I think the the main sort of the, the ethos is of both of those is first of all they they look particularly complicated um but the point is to try to get across to the athlete and the coach that there are steps that need to be considered in each of those scenarios um that have things involved in them that probably a lot of athletes just don't consider it's sort of a lot of athletes, I think, look at nutritional supplements as an insurance policy. Hey, I'm probably okay, but just in case I'm not, I'll take this. Uh, and in, in some situations, that's, first of all, it's a waste of your time and your money. 
Uh, and in other situations, it may actually be hampering your performance. Uh, and, and, you know, at worst, it could be exposing you uh, as is a theme that's common throughout the paper to the risk of a, 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 um, an anti-doping rule violation. Um, and, you know, I hope it didn't come out too strong, but it was a particularly, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say that there were a lot of people that were very strongly uh, wanted that message to come out is that the policy of strict liability uh, applies to athletes, particularly at the Olympic level. And every time you take a supplement, uh, of course, unless you are 100% guaranteed, you know where it came from, or basically, you know, you controlled every ingredient that went into it. Um, that's, that's always a risk. Uh, the maturity of the athlete, uh, whether you have an adverse reaction uh, you know, is there uh, any history um, of adverse reactions in your family, in your athletic group? And, you know, all of these things are, I think, questions that a lot of athletes probably wouldn't ask themselves or coaches wouldn't ask themselves. And so we tried to put a framework to something that would allow people to walk through somewhat of a decision tree. Um, it seems a little bit overly prescriptive. But I'll be honest with you again, given all the players that were at the table, um, it went back and forth. And uh, uh, I can tell you, since I was the person creating those trees, that, uh, <laughs> they, they changed a lot. Um, it, it was I, short. I can imagine. And then all of a sudden somebody said, but what about? And so. Yeah, I mean, they're terrific. And I think even, you know, as you mentioned, uh, people don't be intimidated by them. Just having a read through even once just really highlights a lot of the different, uh, you know, left turns and right turns people can take and what they should be considering. So it's really, uh, you know, I can't imagine how much work to get to the end stage of that, but uh, really well done there. Yeah, cool. thank you. And of course, too, I want to respect your time here. So again, you know, fantastic insights here. So before we wrap up, uh, last couple questions for you. Uh, on the personal side of things, always interested in morning routines. I had your colleague, uh, Dr. Martin Gabala, on uh, last last year, share his AM routine with us. So, you know, how about yourself? Are you a coffee guy? Are you straight into the lab in the, in the morning? Sure. How does, how yeah, does that yeah. day start I'm, for you? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hardcore coffee guy. Uh, I, I enjoy uh, espresso in the morning. It usually starts out with a double espresso. Uh, I'm in the gym by either 5.30 or probably 6 in the morning. Uh, if my workout isn't done within an hour, I think I'm wasting my time. Uh, I'm nice. I, uh, I put a headphones on. I don't talk to anybody. <laughs> you Get know, down to business, uh, right? Yeah. It's, it's like church for me. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of my sanctuary and it's kind of where I get my karma square for the rest of the day. Um, I, I never used to think about daily steps, but, uh, as I get a little bit older, um, I do wear the, uh, the Fitbit or a version of it. Uh, to remind me that I, I should be aiming to, to move a lot more than I do uh, because I sit down on my butt for a lot of the day, I'll be honest. Um, and yeah, I kind of, uh, that's sort of uh, five to six days a week and usually one day a week uh, I let myself sleep in. Hey, there you go, right? You gotta, sleep is key for recovery, so sounds like you great know, advice. Sleep is, uh, I, I, I was asked to give a talk a couple of years ago about you know future trends in uh in basically sort of exercise science. And I said, everybody needs to learn some more about sleep because um, I think sleep to me is that's your, um, I understand that, you know, and you're, you're involved in high level sport is that there are a number of these sleep consultants that are now cropping up about telling people 
uh, when they should sleep, what they should do. And I'm like, that sounds like a pretty good gig. So, uh, and it can definitely affect performance. So, uh, a huge, a huge new area. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. I had uh, Dr. Amy Bender on and of course, Shree Ma from Stanford, uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it is amazing how the performance benefits, recovery benefits, and, you know, totally free, too, so. Yeah, well, and, and, and the other thing is, is, I mean, outside of that is all of the adverse health consequences associated with poor or short-duration sleep. And, you know, I'm not the world's greatest sleeper, so uh, it, put the, it put the fear of the Lord into me, I'll tell you. I, was, I have a, a resolution for 2018, and it is to improve the quality of my sleep, so. Uh, terrific. Well, listen, Stu, last one here for you. What's the biggest take-home advice you would give an athlete uh, on the evidence-based use of supplements in sport? So, so to me, uh, supplements are the icing on the cake. They are, or the sprinkles on the icing on the mm. cake. Uh, you got to get your, you, you, well, we talked about sleep. Got to get your, your training's got to be consistent. Your sleep's got to be consistent. Your nutrition has to be dialed in, and by that I mean consistency and getting all of the macros in proportion. Um, and, and those are the fundamental foundations uh, on which the pyramid that you know peaks with uh, with top performance really rests. And and the supplements are these small things that you add on top. And for some people, they can make um, a difference. I mean, it could be the difference between. Most mere mortals, I got to be honest and say, I don't know that they make that much of a difference. The younger the athlete is, I really think that you need to dial in, you know, one, two, and three first. Um, for the people closer to the top, it could be uh, the performance advantage that they need. But um, you got to get the fundamentals dialed in before anybody even looks at uh, at, at supplements. So most young athletes flip the thing on its head and they just sort of say, which supplements will get me to the top? And I'm like, none of those. You, you need to get the basics <laughs> down first. Fantastic. Well, listen, Stu, I really appreciate you taking the time out today. Um, appreciate all your phenomenal work. Definitely a huge influence uh, at us at Canada Basketball. And again, thank you for even sharing so much on, on social media, things like Twitter in terms of spreading the message. So, you know, where can people stay connected with your fantastic work and keep up with uh, getting connected with you on social media? Yeah, well, so first, it was a real pleasure, and, and I like doing these sort of things because uh, I, I do like to try and reach a broader audience. Uh, I realize that publishing scientific papers is, is great, and that's my currency, clearly, um, but the practical message, so, so it's, it's a huge pleasure, and, and, and thank you for the honor of having me on your show. Uh, I am on social media, um, MacKinProf, M-A-C-K-I-N-P-R-O-F, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Um, find me, friend me. I'll try and, or if you can't, follow me. Uh, and I try and get messages out, usually science-based, uh, at least a little bit sometimes with my my opinion. So, uh, <laughs> which I I try to keep in check, but it runneth over every now and again. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, we'll definitely include a link to the paper discussed here in the show notes, and of course to your um, research gate and Twitter as well at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Stu, thanks again for, for taking the time. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Prof or want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. Of course, your comments are greatly appreciated. And of course, as well, if you enjoy the show and are a regular listener, please subscribe and share with friends. Thanks again and see you all next week. 
The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.